Welcome back, everyone. This is Austin Roberts. Here on the EcoCiv podcast, we engage leading thinkers in conversations about the kinds of transformations required to create a more sustainable, peaceful, and just world. The work of the EcoCiv Institute as a whole significantly depends on the generosity of supporters and listeners like you. So if you enjoy this podcast and value the many other projects that we are engaged in, please consider making a donation at ecociv.org slash donate. For today's episode, Philip Clayton speaks with Ernst Conradi, who is a senior professor of religion and theology at the University of Western Cape in South Africa. Ernst is also one of the task team conveners for the first W12 Congress, a meeting of cities from around the world to address the escalating global water crisis. This event, which Ecociv is helping to organize, will be held in January 2020 in Cape Town, South Africa, and it aims to be the first of a global movement featuring the major work of city governments facing water crises. In his conversation with Philip, Ernst talks about the water crisis in Cape Town and its leadership role for the W12 conference. They also discuss Ernst's vocation as an eco-theologian, integrating social justice and environmental politics, Christian environmentalism from the 20th century to the present, and why he remains hopeful in the face of the escalating climate crisis. And now, here's Ernst and Philip. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Philip Clayton. I'm president of the Institute for Ecological Civilization. And on the podcast today, it's my privilege to introduce Professor Ernst Conradi. Professor Conradi is senior professor in the Department of Religion and Theology at the University of the Western Cape in South Africa. I've worked with and known Ernst for over two decades. He is one of the leading figures in environmental theology around the world, among other interests, a prolific author, uh, the organizer of many significant conferences, um, and an activist in many areas, as you'll find out. Good morning, Ernst, and welcome to the podcast. Good afternoon, Philip. <laughs> it's a little more difficult to do a conversation with nine time zones between us. Could you talk a little bit about what led you to make the personal and professional commitment to become an environmental theologian, a theologian who works on these areas relatively early in, in your career? How did that come about? Thank you, Philip. Um, I often explain that with reference to the Yongashuk Valley, where I grew up um, at the foothills of the Stellenbosch Mountains all around me. Uh, it's an incredibly beautiful town and a very picturesque valley. And um, I think of myself as spending my childhood uh, learning to appreciate the beauty of the surroundings, walk the mountains, uh, enjoyed that thoroughly. Also my student years, I was more in the mountains over weekends than <laughs> studying behind my desk, um, also uh, over holidays. Um, and I don't take it for granted that you, that you just naturally appreciate such beauty. You really need to learn it and to understand it and walk the mountains in order to appreciate that. And then I say my... Uh, teenage and, and early adult years were this, a process of discovering that the rest of the world isn't quite so beautiful. For various reasons, uh, this town of Stellenbosch uh, is the most unequal town in, Stellenbosch, in, in South Africa, uh, they say, and that is not because there's so much poverty, but there's a concentration of extreme affluence. Um, and of course, I grew up in the apartheid years in South Africa, and so my, my 
political conscientization meant that I very quickly discovered that the rest of the, not just South Africa, but the world is not quite as beautiful. And that contrast between beauty and ugliness um, really kept me going up till now. Uh, thinking back, why I started in, in the field is is difficult, but I, I think it's a matter of um, genealogy, of demographics and topographics. I say that if you have a, a father and a grandfather who, who were pastors and a mother and a grandmother who were teachers and a other grandfather who's a farmer and you put all of those together you get ecotheology quite quickly <laughs> that's and, great and so i started off um soon after i finished my phd uh working in a department um trying to get students to write an assignment and i thought well that would be an interesting idea to please uh, to, to let them work something on something like the environment and i then started collecting material it took me 20 years to keep collecting such material and so i, I started with bibliography work um reading some of the stuff that i collected um and then later started contributing to the field so we're not a religious organization we don't um have on our website resources about the history of religion and the environment but a lot of people have the impression that, that religions in general, and maybe Christianity in particular, is non-environmental or even anti-environmental. Um, yet you're a Christian theologian who made that connection central to your work. Is there a long history, centuries and centuries of Christian environmentalism, or was it being born about the time that your career was moving forward? Can you just step back a little bit and help us understand about sort of religion and environmental concern? Okay, so, um quite a few things uh, are linked to that. The, the field of eco-theology started in earnest uh, around about the 1970s, partly in response to the uh, report on limits to growth that was published by the uh, Club of Rome, uh, commissioned by M uh, from MIT, and partly in response to the famous article by Lynn White that you would know of that said that Christianity is a deeply anthropocentric and bears a huge burden of guilt for the ecological crisis. So globally, that sparked off uh, the field of eco-theology. And I would say when I got going with this around 1992, uh, it was fairly well established. Um, if kind of narrowly focused on uh, questions about the relationship between humans and the rest of nature, um, uh, uh, trying to explore that in, in different ways. Uh, since th that time, it has exploded in all sorts of different directions, covering each and every possible theme, uh, not just of Christianity, but of all the other global religions, especially the Abrahamic religions, because they were in, placed in the box of accusations that they are part of the main reason. So I, I was stimulated by that um, and the global conversations I remember uh, reading in Oxford, uh, Jürgen Moltmann's Guardian Creation, and that got me uh, going and started reading a lot of other stuff in the, in the same process. Um, but within the South African context, um, th there were, there's a long tradition, of course, of nature conservation. The so-called Kruger National Park uh, has been one of the very earliest um, examples of nature conservation or nature preservation. Uh, there were wilderness areas all over the uh, South Africa. The Siederberg um, is one of my favorite places. I kind of go there as a, 
on a pilgrimage and that, that's a, a preservation site um, of extreme beauty you should come and visit philip i'll take you on a hike there <laughs> sometime at least um, i would love to uh cougar yeah. is is beautiful and to, to remember to watch the sun coming up uh in, early in the morning to see a lion walking his territory um, it's a it's a type of just breathtaking beauty that I've rarely seen anywhere in the world. Indeed, but at the same time, um, that kind of nature conservation was deeply contested by the early 1990s. That was the time also of political transformation in the country. Um, some people uh, argued that uh, these areas were pre being preserved at the cost of indigenous people who were no longer welcome. They lost their rights to the land. And there were these concerns that more energy is being spent on protection of animals while human lives were denigrated and um, people were tortured and uh, what basically amounts to concentration camps. Um, and so how to define what uh, ecological concerns are was to me from the very beginning a, a point of concern so that I ha I try to make sure that when people think ecology they don't think uh, all these big um, global issues or don't think nature conservation but try to see how uh, environmental issues impinge on uh, the poor and the marginalized factory workers, farm workers, uh, women, children um, those kind of groups. So uh, one of my core arguments also with students is to say that the uh, the poor in uh, what we call townships in South Africa, most of the problems that they experience on a daily basis are environmental problems, even though it's not often perceived that way. And that has to do with uh, the plight of winter, uh, air pollution, uh, factory, uh, noises from airports, uh, overcrowding, etc., etc. These are all actually environmental problems, but not always perceived as such. So I had to figure out for myself, what does this actually mean? And what kind, what kind of issues are there that one needs to uh, pick up? Um, at UWC specifically, uh, when I arrived um, there in 1993 as a part-time lecturer, I, uh, UWC, you need to appreciate, is a historically black university, uh, one of the premier sites of struggle in the 70s and 80s when there were student uprisings all over the place. And I discovered that my student activism from Stellenbosch University, which was, you could say, the uh, intellectual think tank of the National Party, I was always on the uh, far left of the spectrum at, as a student, but it meant absolutely nothing when I came to UWC, when I realized these agendas don't make any difference. Uh, there are other people picking that up. And I asked myself, so what kind of contribution can I make with legitimacy that would not run against these agendas, uh, typically political agendas over democracy, human rights, etc., cetera, um, and, and women's issues, uh, but that could complement what others are doing. And so uh, working on environmental issues uh, gave me that angle to say, okay, I'm not dealing directly with poverty or economic inequality or democracy or all of these. I am dealing with them, but from the perspective of environmental concerns, because this is a way to complement uh, those many other agendas where I don't need to take the lead, but and others um, should. When you describe the way that um, you moved into environmental work and when you list the kinds of issues that you deal with. You spoke of air pollution, overcrowding, access to food and water, and so forth. And sanitation, I should mention as well. Sanitation. Mm -hmm. 
and the way that this became your sort of core identity when you moved to this political hotbed at University of the Western Cape. Um, it almost sounds like the overarching idea there that you bring as a theologian is what we often call in the United States, the social justice concern. Mm-hmm. And I wonder how much is that, is that link between the theological tradition that you studied and taught and the environmental work that is part of your publication, how much is that bridge constituted by a notion of justice, or the striving for justice? Is that, is that true? Is that, is that a notion which is both sort of Christian theological and a guide for you in the way that you approach the environmental work? Um, so two comments on that, uh, Philip. The, the one is I'm, I was deeply influenced uh, when I started working in this field uh, by the ecumenical agenda, this uh, sometimes called the conciliar agenda over justice, peace, and the integrity of creation. And so justice was certainly part of it, but what intrigued me is really the interplay between uh, these three, because peace issues ca- also come, and so if you have injustices, don't be surprised if there is violent conflict lurching, uh, if there is environmental degradation over scarce resources, justice issues will pop up. So the interplay um, certainly intrigued me uh, from the very beginning. Uh, but then uh, there were also debates uh, precisely over this conciliar uh, process in the South African context where uh, many people uh, framed it as the green agenda versus the brown agenda. So the brown agenda is the social justice issues, and it would include the way in which environmental issues impinge on um, on justice issues, and and then how the basically the poor and the marginalised are affected. Um, and some greenies would say, but that's deeply anthropocentric. It still doesn't resolve the problem. It, it focuses only on human beings and their needs. Whereas the counter argument against the so-called green agenda is that this is um, misanthropic, that it hates human beings, that it doesn't um, uh, see how nature conservation or nature preservation can aggravate the plight of the poor and the oppressed. Um, And so we've had these long debates about the green agenda and the uh, brown agenda. My good friend, late friend Steve DeGrucci then came up with the olive agenda to say that somehow you need to integrate. These things can't be separated. They need to be, they need to come together. Um, And I then would also always ask him, so are you talking about green olives or black olives or what kind of olives are you talking about? Because how do you relate these? Um, I, uh, and he too worked with this notion of oikos, the the whole household of God, as another way of integrating these concerns over justice, peace and a sustainable society. That was the formulation at the World Council's Assembly, World Council of Churches Assembly in Nairobi in 1975. They called for a just participatory and sustainable society. And I warmed to that as well and said, so can we find ways of integrating that? And in a way, I've spent the last 25 years thinking about this metaphor, not only its attractions, but also its limitations on a whole range of um, aspects of the Christian faith that, that is part and parcel of my work. That's really interesting. Um, the question that I always ask guests on the podcast um, involves the phrase that's in the title of this institute, the phrase ecological civilization. Um, it's not one that appears frequently in your own writing, but it does have that a long-term focus and the focus on moving toward a different kind of world or a different way of living on this planet. 
if you if you took that term and parsed it from the standpoint of your own work, the concepts you write about, the priorities that you work on, how where are there connections, and if there are tensions, uh, uh, what what might those be? Okay, that's an interesting and a good question, Philip, because you, you're right. It's not uh, a concept that I have used in my own writing uh, very often. Um, and I kind of wonder why that would be the case. It's certainly one that, that, uh, that I'm attracted to. It's not something that I would resist, but it's not one that I use. So why not? Uh, I think part of the reason may have been the history of apartheid, where the very concept of civilization, especially in its European manifestations, was obviously deeply contested. Um, uh, in my own writings on apartheid, I've often made the point that um, this, you could say, elitist idea of civilization, uh, keeping the European notions of civilizations uh, alive uh, amidst the sea of barbarism. It's often called the flame of, um, of the light of Christianized forms of civilization in this deep, dark, African continent um, was the very reason why people thought they need to, to create uh, distinctions between themselves and others, um, both from within and from the outside, in order to maintain a particular sense of civilization. And of course, that led to many further debates about other forms of civilizations, including African civilizations from the um, pre-colonial period. There, there's the Great Zimbabwe, but there were also uh, early civilizations within the South African context. And so the very idea that some people are civilized and others are not became deeply contested. Um, and, and it's something that I would therefore almost intuitively not want to touch too quickly. At the same time, there are concerns over sustainability that are very congenial to this idea of ecological civilization, because that's the, the long-term question. How long can we continue civilization, especially as insofar as it's based on um, on, on fossil fuels, uh, it's not sustainable. So can you maintain civilization as it were without the use of those, uh, those fossil fuels? These are questions that I, that I grapple with um, as you do and, and many others. So it's not a concept that I'm uh, foreign to, but it's not one that I would um, naturally use. Um, one area where there might seem to be a connection between the two is the long-term perspective. So, uh, the Western religions have been um, messianic or millennial. Uh, the Abrahamic traditions have thought about a future state where justice would reign. They, and religion almost by nature takes the long-term perspective on the universe or on human existence as a whole. It draws the, idea, the eyes up from the day-to-day -to, -day to ask this broader question. I haven't really explored this with anyone, but I wonder whether... A notion of a, this long-term goal captured by the idea of ecological civilization and the long-term goals or the long trajectory of the Abrahamic traditions are, might not be related. Is there a way of thinking that's congenial or connected between the two? Certainly the Abrahamic religions are religions of hope. Um, but hope is not the same as optimism, and it is not so much hope for the far distant future, because then you enter into the terrain of thinking that um, hope has to do with predictions that you can, as it were, paint exactly how the future will transpire in, in years to come. So there, there's a lot of misunderstanding there. Um, hope is um, 
is, is not the same as optimism either because it's counterintuitive and often related to uh, despite present circumstances you nevertheless say if God is with us we can't just relinquish all hope we, the, somehow we need a solution I remember debates that we had during the difficult transition years in South Africa around 93 and 94 where all the predictions were that this would lead to a bloodbath and many Christians said, even if this is true, we can't abide by that. We need to say, no, there must be something else, um, something uh, possible. But that is a hope, not for the long-term future. It is for the more immediate future. But your vision is not restricted to what you can get next year or even then. But it has to have also that long-term sense of eternity, you could say. Um, and so, yes, you are right. That's that. Uh, that has been important to me. When I met you, Philip, and I think it was in 1998, I was working on a book called Hope for the Earth, um, which is um, very much uh, we're playing with those kind of ideas. Also, keeping in mind the very long-term future of the planet and of the universe. That uh, from science and religion debates that really intrigued me. And I said, so okay, is there hope for the Earth itself as well? Given that that not only we as human beings are mortal, but that the earth is also finite in terms of temporality. So, yeah, that's the kind of very long term thinking of billions of years, not just millions of thousands or decades. There's another aspect of the biblical traditions for Jews and Christians in particular, um, and it's reflected in Islam also, um, that I wanted to ask you about. And that's the dimension of the prophetic. So the prophet is the one who stands up and says of the world around him or her, um, this is just, this is not just, this is not the kingdom of God, whatever. And then uh, tries to focus people's attention on what would be the core of the right way to live with each other and on the planet. I often think of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. as a present day yeah. prophet. Uh, he's this, has a famous quote where he affirms that the moral arc of the universe bends toward justice. And I wonder whether that part of the, of the Abrahamic traditions links it all with your work, and if it's another a possible bridge with those who call for a just, a sustainable form of human life, civilization, on this planet. Yeah, well, absolutely. The... Um the, the prophetic tradition uh, has been very strong in South Africa, as you know, precisely because of the struggle against apartheid. And in, in many publications, um, also ecumenical publications on climate change, for example, we have tried to argue that this is merely a continuation of the same kind of mode of doing uh, theology prophetically that is just continued. But then you need to recognize new moments of truth that have arrive that calls for decision making and um, I'm certainly for that same reason attracted to Martin Luther King um, and his uh, emphasis on a moral vision that emerges that may not have been there uh, previously but then all of a sudden is there and changes things because you can no longer look at the world in the same way once that kind of moral vision has emerged. Uh, the, the abolition of slavery is one, the end of apartheid is another, uh, so that you you no longer tolerate. But then the, the, the prophet has um, that ability to speak truth to power directly, is willing to face the consequences, is able to offer uh, trenchant criticisms, but at the same time is able to not only 
uphold a vision, but help people to imagine what are the next steps. So with Martin Luther King is get on the bus. It will be very hard, but that's the first practical step that you can take in order to uh, reach that vision. So that mode of, of, of prophetic theology is certainly um, has inspired me when I was a student. Um, and uh, at least in my, in my work on climate change, that, that is the mode in which I think one needs to do. The, 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 the prophet is also not just the critic. The prophet is um, not able only to see what is wrong in the world, but is able to see counter movements. Um, they may be small, they may be not all that visible, but can help to identify these and recognize them and say these are the ways in which God is making a difference and moving in a different direction. And therefore, you need to be sensitive to these uh, uh, signs of the Spirit, if you like. Let's make the transition to your analysis of the global situation. There are those who, uh, whose analysis, even you know, based on the science, what they see around them is that, that we are either close to a precipice, uh, close to a point of no return where ecosystems will unravel and uh, these consequences will follow. Um, there are some actually who say that we're past that precipice and we're, we're in free fall, that it's, it's, it is too late. The, our inspiration in the founding of the Institute was John Cobb, who asked in 1971 in a book, is it too late? Yeah. 1971 is a lot of decades back. Um, <laughs> there are others who are uh, technophiles who are fairly sure that humans will come up with the necessary technology to avoid um, the worst consequences and maybe most negative consequences. Uh, you write as an author and a scholar and resident of, um, of the Global South and of one of the con continents where it's said will be hit the hardest, is being hit the hardest by climate, climate change. What is your What's your reading of the scientific data? What's your reading of the global situation that we face today? Uh, thank you, Philip. This is a hard question to answer. I'm naturally inclined to be a pessimist rather than an optimist, but I do not think that hope has to do with pessimism or optimism. Um, so my own reading of the, the scientific data and the political analysis of the ability of the um, global decision makers through the, the various conferences of the parties, for example, is that um, it would be very difficult to avoid a very significant uh, disturbance to what we have at the moment. So we would need to go through some form of very dramatic transition that could lead to a catastrophe, but I'm not a prophet in that sense that I can predict that something like that would happen. But um, all the pointers are as far as I can see, very negative. There are small pockets of hope and, and where people come up with ideas, but these are not um, at this kind of scale that, that is required. So um, I, I don't think it would be easy uh, to avoid a catastrophe. Uh, two weeks ago, I was uh, speaking at a winter school here in Stellenbosch, um, where I uh, gave as a title, and uh, this may shock you, um, why am I telling my children that the walls of Jerusalem will fall within their lifetime? Wow. I put, <laughs> I put the walls, yeah, it is, both the walls and Jerusalem um, in inverted commas. And I was thinking, of course, of the figure of Jeremiah who had to cope with that idea that, um, that the catastrophe may not be averted, 
but nevertheless placed his hope in the long-term future, 70 years and even beyond that, um, and purchased some land uh, as a symbol that all is not done, even though the catastrophe may not be avoided. So, um, as you would know, in South Africa, we have been uh, prone to play around with these biblical images, and they're all rather naughty because you have more dissimilarities than similarities. So in the 80s, 70s, we were talking about the house of slavery in Egypt, and we need the, um, the Pharaoh. Who's the Pharaoh, and who's the, going to be our Moses who will lead us to the promised land? And in the 90s, when things were not all going all that well, at least there was um, the unbanning of the liberation movements. People said, but isn't this now wandering through the wilderness on our way to the promised land? And the return from exiles also promised, pro prompted some reflections to say, isn't this the return from exile? Or how should you think about that? Um, and nobody really addressed the idea of the conquest of Canaan. <laughs> so we need to watch out for that. But so that would scare me. But um, in 2009, the South African Council of Churches produced a little book uh, before the Copenhagen Conference of the Parties, in which we acknowledge these uh, rather playful biblical analogies and then said, but maybe we are not in that kind of uh, time of catastrophe yet. And so we use the image there of the reformations on the King Josiah, you could say 30 years or so before the catastrophe came, where there was a rediscovery of the law and a transformation of the whole of society on the basis of the law to say, this is what we need, because if we don't do this, the catastrophe will come. Um, and they did. And it was in a way quite successful, at least for a while. And we said, well, maybe that is what we need still. We need to um, uh, engage in a radical transformation of society uh, that would require essentially that the carbon uh, basis of the or the energy basis of the global economy needs to be changed from uh, fossil fuels to sustainable alternatives and we said then this has to happen in 50 years or 60 years I think we said from 1990 to uh, 2050 of which the first 20 years were gone by that time, now the first 30 years are gone, and they are more important than the later years. And so, But we said, okay, there's may maybe still time for, for change. And then I uh, said at the conference last week, uh, maybe I'm now siding with, with Jeremiah. I'm not giving up hope, but it would be very difficult to avoid a looming catastrophe. Um, uh, I'm attracted still to that idea of ecological civilization because it has this long-term vision to say, if we want some form of uh, civilization as we know it, uh, with universities and maybe even Olympic Games and those kind of things, um, libraries, uh, maybe in a different form, then we need to think not only long-term, but we need to think uh, through the radical implications of this a failure around sustainability that I think we are confronted with. What needs to be done? What kinds of changes do you advocate for? Where, where is the start? What's, what is the nature of the human response that you call for? So I think that's twofold, Philip. The, the, the one has to do with um, the possibility that, that even if you can't avoid the catastrophe, you can avoid the, the worst effect. So whatever we do will lessen the, the problem for our children and grandchildren. Um, even if it doesn't avoid it, at least um, we need to do what, what can be done in terms of politics, uh, ec economics, lifestyle changes. Uh, that's on the, on the short 
to medium term. But then I think there's also some slow work that one needs to keep in mind that takes much longer. It takes centuries to accomplish. Uh, the Buddhists, I think, understand that's better, but there are also these wonderful stories about Christian communities who have treasured a certain instinct for centuries. And when a new challenge then arrive, they are able to respond to that. And, and so I think um, some work is like that, uh, that you just need to keep doing what you are doing uh, because slowly, you change vocabulary, you, you change a, a moral vision helps to sink in. Instead of frenetically trying to um, uh, organize a, a revolution or something like that, the slow work helps you to see that you need to have to maintain the long-term vision, even if it would not, would not lead uh, to short-term successes. Uh, so the liturgy, I think, is a good example because liturgies don't change people overnight. 20 years of good preaching can change your life. It has changed mine, um, but no one sermon did ever did that trick. Um, so, because it changed your way of looking at things. And that's also the reason why you need long services in, in, in the African context, because people um, come with their ideas of, the, of power. Uh, what makes the world go around? It's money, it's politicians, it's the, the rich, the powerful, the, the beautiful, uh, they make the world go round, and then you need to come to the liturgy, and there you are told, no, actually, that's not what makes the world go round. Vulnerability and love is what makes the world go round, and the people say, oh, that can't be, we can't believe it. And so you need these long services to, to change your mind, so that when you go out of the liturgy, you say, well, now we see the world in a, in a new light, as I would want to say, in the, in the light of the light of the world, and then that changes everything. But it's slow work. Nice. In the light of the light of the world? Yeah. Um, what might communities in the future look like? You've written a book with the um, target date of 2050. For those communities that are living in a sustainable way, what, what might that look like? How are they structured? How are people living? What is that, that hopeful vision that draws you? Yeah. I can't give a good answer to that, Philip. I'm not the, the kind of person who can help to imagine that. I've read um, many attractive things, and I, what I do think, uh, especially in the African context, is that those kind of communities would need to be urban communities. And so the temptation is always to imagine a rural community somewhere in deep Africa, uh, which would be uncontaminated by the Industrial Revolution and by the kind of changes that we see. Um, that is not attractive to most people who are flocking to the city. So what we need is an understanding of sustainable communities. Um, and as Larry Rasmussen, um, a person whom I respect very much, have said that the problem is that these urban communities are um, uh, replenished uh, with moral codes and moral visions, but they are depleted faster than they are replenished. Um, he wrote to this book on uh, moral fragments and moral communities, I think it was in 1993 already. Um, so they are all threatened and in um, the context where I live on the Cape Flats, that is quite evident. You, you do get these pockets where people hold one another's hands and they resist all the traps of poverty. But at the same time, gangsterism, drug abuse, alcoholism, prostitution, etc., gambling is absolutely rife. Um, so that the military has been called in recently to maintain some degree of order in, in the uh, neighborhoods of, of the Cape Flats uh, because of gangsterism and, and the crime that is associated with that. So 
yes, there is that kind of, that, that need for communities to, because that's the only way that you can um, operate. It, it's not through big structural changes. It's the resilience of, of living in communities that can make the difference, but it's hard. Let's talk about the specific project that uh, we've been working together on for a number of several years now. Um, uh, you've taken the leadership. You were the first South African leader to begin advocating for a global meeting of cities um, after Cape Town uh, faced what came to be called Day Zero. And um, through your work, and now you've brought in University of the Western Cape and um, other organizations and individuals across uh, the Western Cape and also across South Africa, um, you're a major part of this planned event on January 27th to 31st of 2020. Um, so I'd love to talk a little bit about that um, activism, that leadership that you've exercised. Could you start and uh, by describing for um, our listeners, what is this day zero notion that is uniquely associated with Cape Town among the cities of the world? What, how did that come about? What's its significance? Obviously, you think that that notion has some positive significance, but what, what's the background to the use of that term, day zero? What, we know vaguely, but as a, as a lifelong person of the Western Cape, what, uh, what happened? So, um, a bit of background I think is helpful. Uh, Cape Town and the Western Cape is basically a winter rainy season uh, part of the country. Uh, so we have dry summers and wet winters, uh, which means June, July, August uh, tend to be wet. And from living memory, uh, there were drier and wetter cycles so that you would have three, four, five, seven years of the heavy rainfall and then drier spells. Um, we uh, have had in 2015, 16 and 17, three very dry years in succession, which means about 40% less rainfall than we were normally on average expecting. The last year or two has been average, not above average, but, but average again. And so what happened, of course, is that the dams that help us to maintain enough water for the sum dry summer months and needs to get us to April or May when the first rains would start falling, they were being depleted. And so uh, water restrictions were introduced in all the major towns, but certainly in the city of Cape Town as well. And these water restrictions became more and more severe as it became evident that we may run into trouble. This was late 20, um, 2017 and early 2018. That was um, clear that, that, that a crisis is looming unless we do something dramatically. At the same time, um, Quite a bit of the water in the Western Cape is used for agriculture. We are a wine growing industry, soft fruit, um, is, and that is a source of employment for many people. So that needed to be kept going, uh, but they too were restricted in terms of the water that they can retrieve from the rivers and the dams. Um, and then gradually it became clear that we need, uh, that, that we may run into serious trouble. And so the city of Cape Town then uh, increased the levels of the water restrictions to the point where people were allowed only 50 liters uh, per person per day. I'm not oh, quite that's sure. Not that's not much. That's, that's 12 very gallons little. of water. I bet the standard American usage is four or five times that much per person per yeah. day. 
Yeah. So um, that's basically if you flush the toilet three or four times a day, then you've used all of it. Um, so wow. it, and and so uh, people discovered the need to figure out what are they using water for, and they were certainly not allowed to fill up swimming pools or a garden, um, uh, water the garden, uh, or wash the car or anything like that. Um, and so you needed to think about not only taking showers instead of baths, but taking short towers, showers, they were timed. Um, and you needed to think about washing clothes and especially reusing water, because that was the only way that you could come close to it. The absolutely remarkable part of the story is that the citizens of Cape Town complied, not completely, they were always guilty people and they were uh, listed, at least their addresses were, and they were put to shame but with their names being published and they were fined. Um, but most of people don't, most people wouldn't fall in that category. So the ordinary citizens simply recognize we need to, each of us need to do something, otherwise uh, we may be in serious trouble. The origins of this notion of day zero is, is a bit obscure. I think some of my colleagues have had um, a role in that, and it was widely regarded as a bit of scare tactics and maybe not the right message to send. You, you, you will not really inspire people. But I think in the end, it was just effective. It worked. <laughs> and yeah. so um, there was that recognition, except that people said that maybe we should not be taking it too far. We should, um, uh, because it, it was also clear that day zero doesn't mean zero. It doesn't mean that there would be no water at all. Um, it was true that the dam levels dropped to about 20% around early March uh, last year, um, which is very significant because the last 10 to 12% is not usable. So you were in a situation where you could very quickly run out of the remaining bit. Um, but the, the city then explained that they were never going to cut water completely. They were going to lower the water pressure which meant that people on the 12th floor of a block of flats may struggle with water. And if that happens, of course, you have problems with sanitation as well. And what, if, what happens if there's not enough water to flush your toilets on the 12th floor? And how, what kind of health risks would that pose? So people were getting worried about those kind of scenarios and did not want to impose that. But the, the pictures that were in the media were of long rows where you had to collect water, um, 20 liters uh, per person per day. And then they, some said, but uh, uh, that would be very time consuming. And uh, who wants to stand in those long queues? The, the poor would be okay with it, but the rich would certainly not be too happy. Uh, but also what about the elderly and young people? Where would they get the water from? Um, but I don't think that was ever really on the cards, except in very extreme circumstances. Uh, instead, it was um, making water just less available. So that was what day zero um, amounted to um, in that period. And I think the, officially the city then uh, decided to drop that very notion because they didn't want to scare people all that much. Uh, but at least for a while, it was uh, rather effective. Um, I got interested in this. Uh, I've been interested in these issues for a long time. I sort of keep checking on a Monday what the current water levels are just to make, uh, I think yesterday it was announced again, it was 72% on average, the Cape Town's um, six dams, that, which compares with to 56% uh, last year on the same date. Um, and then that was up from 
just around 20% uh, earlier in the year. So it's kind of uh, statistically interesting and intriguing to watch it and see how where it's going and try to interpret all the data. Um, I then uh, have been teaching environmental ethics to students at UWC for 20 years or so by now, and I give them an assignment every year. I think I told you about that previously. And so I was looking for a good topic last year and said, well, this water thing, uh, the water crisis in Cape Town would be a, a, a very existential topic um, that the students could warm to. And so I gave that to them. But what I did was to say to the students, I'm now appointing you as an ethics stars team in the city of Cape Town. You need to advise the city on what is the best and the most appropriate um, way of telling people to use water responsibly. I didn't say use less water because some people should actually be able to use water more and others should be, be using it much less depending on where you are on the economic scale. So just how do you use it wisely, responsibly? Um, but I then said to them, but there are these rival ethical theories that each will tell you a different story. So the, the deontologist will give you rules and will give you penalties if you don't abide by them. Um, and some people respond to that. They think they need to do their duty and lo and behold, they do that. The utilitarians will probably come up with a day zero scenario and say, well, look, it's in the common interest of all the citizens of Cape Town for us to avoid this crisis. So what, we, what, what do we need to do to ensure the maximum benefit to all people? And the virtue ethicists would say, well, that doesn't really always work. Um, you, what you need is, is the cardinal virtues of wisdom and justice and temperance, not to waste water, for example, and maybe a bit of courage to, to make sure that you, and, and, and these are longer term solutions. And so I asked the students, so what do you think? Which strategy should we be telling the city of Cape Town to use uh, that would be, that, that would make a difference? So that was, of course, a bit of fun. And um, not long after that, I got the call from you to say, shouldn't we be organizing a conference in Cape Town on water? And that was kind of easy to, for me to say, well, that's just an extension of what I've been doing already. Um, and I, in the process of um, letting the students do the assignment, I had to contact the our natural science faculty uh, to get more information on, on what is the situation around uh, underground water and uh, the impact of climate change. So the reason why Cape Town is in trouble is because of climate change and because of the influx of um, people, immigration into the city from the rural areas and then uh, also uh, a rising middle class in some sectors of the population that of course leads to increasing water use. Um, so I had to bring in a bit of demographics, but also natural science to help me to understand what was going on. And those contacts helped when we started organizing the conference, so I could just pick on them and, and say, how do we take this forward? Mm -hmm. Well, from that uh, humble beginning, um, a, 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 an event potentially of global significance has been born. Um, partners came in from industry, uh, Mayor Dan Plato of Cape Town is personally sending out invitations to 16 cities around the world to come to Cape Town the week of January 27th, 2020, to talk about the escalating water crisis and water scarcity in their um, cities and to ask the question what steps we can take. Um, uh, former California Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger has agreed to keynote the event that you launched uh, together with Ecosiv and, and others. 
uh, former um, deputy director of UNESCO will be one of the keynote speakers. Um, there could be as many as 12 different cities officially represented. I suppose that's what the title of the event W12 stands for. People are talking about continuing this meeting on the water crisis at cities every year um, to, to continue to make a global impact. Um, there's major media con uh, uh, coverage promised. Uh, UNESCO is making a film about uh, South Africa and your event will be the culminating um, part of the UNESCO film. And uh, I could go on and on on the sort of um, pieces that are planned for that January event. You in particular have taken leadership for the first part of the, the five-day Congress, which takes place at your university, University of the Western Cape, and that involves, um, again, this was a, your idea, a number of task teams, or we say task forces, that are working on, on specific topics. Could you just say a little bit about those research teams, what they're looking at, and how that may be important for long-term significant results coming out of the Cape Town Conference? the task teams. Yeah. So uh, when we started um, con our conversations about the possibility of such a conference, I immediately warmed to the idea that this requires a multidisciplinary approach because uh, from different uh, disciplines, you would have part of the solution, but you may just ignore other parts of the, of the problem because you simply don't understand it. Um, so any form of complex uh, problem as water shortages uh, would be, would require that kind of multidisciplinary approach. Um, not interdisciplinary or even transdisciplinary, but multidisciplinary. So uh, we then thought of what kind of contributions would one need in order to understand the full complexity. And so we came up with, as you know, these uh, six stars teams, one working in the natural sciences, uh, one, for obvious reasons, because you need to understand uh, hydraulic systems and underground water systems, etc., etc. Uh, we need to understand the social sciences, because the demographics and the way in which people re uh, move and, and, and the influx of people into Cape Town, for example, but it applies to many other African cities. You need to understand something of that, what makes people tick. Uh, you need, obviously, the politicians um, and, and the political analysts to come on board because they, in the end, need to take the, uh, the decisions. They need to make compromises at times. You need the economists on board uh, who can help you to understand what, what, what is um, affordable and cost-effective and what can work and what wouldn't work. Um, and then we said you need civil society because civil society uh, operates in different ways. They often have uh, closest contact with people on the ground and they may have a different take on water compared to the economists who think of water as a utility. In civil society, people never quite think like that. And then at a later stage, we also added the role of engineers because they need to develop the kind of infrastructure uh, that is necessary. Um, so city engineers and water engineers, uh, we said, should come on board as well. Um, and this then developed a life of its own, not without troubles here and there and everywhere, but um, in one way or another, I think what we have is that recognition that, that we each have something to contribute um, and that there may well be tensions between these uh, impacts or um, perspectives because people um, 
would tend to think that their perspective is the decisive one and an underplay perspective from, from elsewhere. So I'm in a way more interested in these tensions and how they would pop up and what people would take for granted uh, in, in, from one uh, disciplinary perspective, whereas other people simply ignore it or don't take that into account at all. Um, what I want to observe as the conference comes closer is where, where are these tensions and what are the things that, that I take for granted and others uh, simply don't take into account at all and vice versa, of course. What are your hopes for what might be the longer term impact from this conference? What kinds of follow-up do you think would be valuable if, if the funding's available and the, the partnerships grow? What's your vision for, for follow-up, for continuing work um, in this area? If, if we've stumbled onto something that hasn't been done globally before, and if, if I may say so, the brand of the word Cape Town in day zero catches on in the way that it may, what would be wise further steps that would have the impact that you look for? Um, the, the obvious answer to that is the significance that we attach to a, a water protocol that can be developed um, in consultation with the 12 or how many cities would gather uh, that would be based not on the experience of Cape Town alone, but precisely because of the differences between these cities. To me, that was one of the most fascinating aspects of, of the planning thus far, is to discover the differences between the kind of water issues faced by different cities. So that what we think is the issue is not the issue elsewhere in the world. And so you need to compare notes, learn from mistakes, because we've made quite a few mistakes, I think, in Cape Town, but also learn from the successes. And in order to hold one another's hands and to say, this is how we, we could uh, go forward. Um, one may need to maintain a healthy skepticism about the impact of these uh, water protocols uh, in the sense that um, it's a piece of paper and, and some cities may simply ignore it. But the process, I think, is also then more important than the product because that uh, process of thinking about your water issues and engaging in conversation with a, a, a number of other cities with very different kinds of still water problems, but of a very different kind, that, that will be something that would be beneficial over the long run. And you never quite know uh, where these things would lead to. Um, uh, a little conversation somewhere can bear fruit 20 years later. But certainly the hope would be that, um, that other cities will be involved in years to come if these uh, kind of conferences are repeated uh, annually, uh, so that other cities would come on board, um, and that the idea of, of addressing it would spread, um, and that the protocol that we hope to formulate would be an instrument that can lead um, and help um, such discussions uh, in years to come. Um, Cape Town itself uh, would be interesting to observe over the next 20 years or so, because the city is quite adamant that uh, the, the, the kind of water crisis that we had last year would never happen again uh, because they think they have got solutions now. I'm very doubtful because of immigration, because of climate change. I, I'm not sure that the infrastructure would be enough, partly because a lot of that infrastructure depends on deep aquifers that are uh, plentiful at the moment, but how long would they really last? Are they having a 50-year or 100-year perspective? 
So I think there are interesting issues for Cape Town to address um, and, and with the universities also in, con in conversation with the city of Cape Town to say, well, we need to plan long term. We can't just think about the next elections uh, at, at the local level. I also have um, interests of my own to pursue. So I have a kind of side agenda to, to monitor what is going on and to think through uh, from a civil society perspective what kind of um, understandings of water would come up with. Um, I think I shared with you, Philip, the, the idea uh, that came from the um, Amsterdam people who are also faced with water issues of a different kind, namely that uh, it, from a civil society and a religious perspective, water is a gift. It's a gift of life. That's not just a utility, it's a gift. And so different connotations are involved. It's also a threat in some contexts. Um, and it is, um, it's, it's a cleansing thing. So you need water for sanitation, for cleaning your up. And then I think water is fun for many people. Um, so there's water sports and, and just wasting water for the fun of it that one should never quite underestimate that, that kind of joy of, of uh, having access to water, especially in water scarce areas, people uh, when, when it rains, there's just fun. People dance in the streets. Um, when we had this, um, uh, at the at the worst um, time, early March, there was a unseasonal, unexpected downpour of rain in Cape Town, and there were people on the streets who were simply going out in the rain with all their clothes, dancing, absolutely happy uh, about this rain pouring down. Um, so that kind of joy one should never quite underestimate, I think. Beautiful. It, um, it makes a, a lovely arc of our discussion because the picture I have from, from the beginning uh, of your words was the young boy who loved the Stellenbosch Mountains and who would be up every weekend just enjoying those spaces in nature. And you finish, and your eyes sort of sparkled when you described that, and you finished with eyes sparkling again as you describe people in a water-parched city dancing in joy, soaking wet in their clothes, arms above their heads uh, in, um, in the sheer joy of, of the gift of water pouring from the heavens in a, in a parched world. Um, yeah, you, you, as, you must, sorry, Philip, just to add to that, in, in some of the dry areas in South Africa, the Kalahari Desert as well, there would be periods when it, where, where it doesn't rain on a particular place for seven years. So imagine a little boy growing up, he's seven years old and for the first time experience rain. Mother, mom, what is this? <laughs> that kind of attitude. And so uh, recently they, they, they had very uh, dry periods for a long time. The, the drought in the Northern Cape is not nearly broken. And so the sheer joy of the, the news coverage of those farming communities when, when they had uh, good downpours is just incredible. So as I imagine the young boy and I imagine the professor, I picture you out on the streets dancing as well. It, <laughs> it makes me wonder again about that way of imagining humans living on this planet in centuries to come. And it's a good final question for somebody whose career has dealt, who's a pessimist by nature, who, uh, who knows the facts and the details of climate change and its implication, who, who understands civil society but also um, teaches in the Department of Religion and Theology and asks the question of the long term. There's hardly a book of yours that doesn't grapple with what we need to do on the long term and what hope looks like. 
what brings you hope? What is the motivation, the hope that motivates your activism, your scholarship, your teaching? Um, what, what is the ground of hope for you? What is, what is it that you hope for in, in humans on this planet well into the future? Um, yeah, okay, Philip, this is also a difficult question, isn't it? Um, so, uh, as a theologian, I would say that my hope is um, not based on evidence or trends that I spot or anything like that. It's based on a vision. It's based on the promises of God, if you want to formulate that theologically, that a different world is possible. And that, that, diff that vision then inspires you. Uh, to not only to think long term, but also to say, what do you do next? The, the kind of small priestly day-to-day -day duties of teaching, preparing for classes, those kind of things that you need to attend to. So it's the the the, the vision that I think is uh, is crucial that inspires you. And maybe I should refer back to UWC. Uh, in many respects, the the university is artificial. It was set up on the basis of the Race Classification Act. In 1960, the university rejected the basis upon which it was founded. It said we should not exist in the first place. Uh, our people should be able to study at, at the white universities, at, uh, which were uh, strong universities at that time. But despite all the odds against it, and it was given a very difficult time during the apartheid years with very stringent budgets provided by the state, it nevertheless uh, operated despite everything. Um, and we are creating a kind of society uh, where there are different groups and different stakeholders that has never been ever before. And so I think of UWC as an experiment into a different world um, that doesn't exist yet, but we are trying it out and, and see whether it can. And, and that certainly gives you a sense of hope. Um, a few years ago, some of my colleagues wrote a anniversary for the university uh, and the, with the title Becoming UWC. The identity does not lie in the past with the founding fathers, usually fathers and not mothers. It doesn't lie really with the years of struggle and uh, the, the big student uprisings of 1976 or even the current successes. We are not yet who we are. We need to become UWC. I find that just absolutely fascinating. And that certainly gives you a sense of hope, yes. Professor Ernst Conradi, a person who's given his entire professional career to, uh, to fight for those mountains, those places of nature, and, um, and the kind of urban environments that will be places where humans can live and thrive in, in their ecosystems, in their bioregions. Um, thank you for the hours and hours that you've poured into this major Cape Town event and I hope that we'll have the chance to work together for years to come. Thanks for taking the time to, to talk with us today. Welcome. Sir.